Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. For those of you who are tuning in on our Facebook Live, um, super excited um, to have you here. Super excited to learn um, with all of you this morning. An exciting panel on talking about justice. We're so grateful for all of you who are, are joining us today with our, our panelists. And our team was really crucial on 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 organizing this this great event today for all of you. So we deeply appreciate you taking the time this morning to learn with all of us. And I'll hand it over to my colleague, Emma, to get us started with um, introducing our, our amazing panelists for today. Great, thank you, Eddie. And thank you everyone for being here. Um, I will go ahead and start with Darren Mack. Uh, he is an activist, advocate and organizer. He is co-director at Freedom Agenda, a member-led organization uh, dedicated to organizing people and communities directly impacted by incarceration to achieve decarceration and system transformation. We also have here Victor Pate, who is a formerly incarcerated person and healing survivor of solitary confinement, co-director of the HALT Solitary Confinement Coalition, chairman of the NYC Chapter National Action Network Second Chance Committee, one of the lead coordinators of the NYC Vote in Jails and Civic Engagement Coalition, member of the legislative advocacy team of the New York for Full Restoration of Voting Rights Coalition, as well as being cross-connected with a host of criminal justice, decarceration, and advocacy coalitions. And finally, we are joined by Ellie Weinbach, who is an experiential educator for the Jewish people and strives to manifest his love of the environment and Jewish tradition in a deeply connected world. He worked for Hazon for three years, uh, including as Jaffe, Jewish Outdoor Food, Farming, and Environmental Education, fellow before transitioning to graduate level rabbinical and environmental studies. He will graduate from Yeshivat uh, Hovei Torah this June. So with that, welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, I will go ahead and just start with uh, the first question we have, which is, is the current justice system just? Does anybody want to start us out? I'm going to jump right in. I think that is a misnomer when you're talking about justice. So I'm quite sure you've heard the new terminology, criminal legal system. And that term has is, is being... Uh, amplified more and more and more as we begin to find out how many thousands of people are being railroaded, how many thousands of people have been found uh, wrongfully convicted, and how, more importantly, disproportionately people of color are incarcerated in our prisons and jails and detention centers. So when we talk about justice, there is no justice. Um, justice for us and justice for them, there are two systems of justice and justice is not across the board and justice is not fair. Um, I don't know about you know, justice being blind, but I can tell you that <laughs> this is not a justice system because justice is not applied for all people in all circumstances. That's my story and I'm gonna stick by it. Yeah, I guess I would chime in, build off, you know, what Victor said, stated in regards to the question. You know, I think we all believe, you know, we all want our system, criminal justice system to be just. And we all believe that it should be just. But as Victor mentioned, the way it has been operating, you know, 
over you know uh, over decades it, um, it has been unjust in so many ways um like like what got what got me into advocacy was learning uh, about just a relative of mine um, George Stinney Jr. Um, you know I got a letter from a cousin it was a cutout newspaper article about George Stinney Jr. Uh, they was actually making a film a film about his case and George Stinney Jr. He in 83 days he was arrested, convicted, uh, and executed. He got the electric chair, falsely convicted, falsely and falsely executed. He was 14 years old. And when I learned about this story, you know, it happened a long time ago. Like, wow, what you know type of system do we have that can allow such a tragic you know situation to occur like this? And as Victor mentioned, for, for far too many. Um, black and brown and poor people, especially in our, in, our, in our country, but in our city as well. You know, there's been a lot of injustice that's been happening, you know, within the legal system than it has been just when it comes to, the, you know, those communities. And, and like, and just to, and to, I guess, like, in the words of, 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 of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, he stated that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And unfortunately, in this day, even though that case happened a long time ago, people throughout our city and the country have experienced an injustice with the system. And that's why we organize and that's, we, that's why we advocate the work so we can have a more fair and just system. But for, but, but for far too many people experiencing it, it has been unjust. Thank you. Um, is there a way to move past private prisons? Victor, would you like to start? So, so yeah, just don't build them. Don't don't fund them. Don't build them. And when we're talking about another form of, of slavery, because prisons is modern day slavery, we can't get away from that. And you always have to go back to the historical point uh, when you talk about incarceration, which is actually enslavement by another name, right? And if you're talking about prison industrial complex, it's all about making money, right? And when we talk about, you know, uh, private prisons that are owned by these billion millionaires um, and they run by their own rules, there is no oversight, there's no monitoring, and they just do just about whatever they want. There should be legislation that disallows private prisons, number one, okay? And if you don't create the platform for them to build on, you won't have private prisons. So what does that take? That takes advocacy, activism, right? Legislation, people who care about other human beings, um, the, the care that people receive while they are in a custody status. But more importantly, because you mentioned about private prisons, right? Um, I don't, I just really can't fathom how people are allowed to even one build a prison that has no systems of accountability. Okay. And they can just do willy nilly whatever they want, make their own rules, and they're accountable to no one. So, how does that happen? Through, you know, policies that are, are passed and made uh, by the, you know, powers that be the good old boy and the good old girl network. So I think that when you're talking about 
doing away with it. Uh, not don't even let it happen. Don't even create a platform for it to happen. Number one. So that's basically my my overall answer. Thank you, Darren. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, kind of echo. You know, um, the prison industrial complex in our in our country is you know probably the largest you know in in, in the world. Um, but when it comes to like private private prisons, I think people need to understand that's a small, a very small fraction of of you know the the, the criminal justice system when it comes to like jails and prisons and ICE detention centers. You know within within our country, um, state prisons is probably about like over a, a, a million people in the state prison system. Um, local jails are about half a million. Then there's like federal prison and jails. And the private, you know, the private prison sector is like a, a, a very small fra fraction of that. And I think we can move past it because it has been, you know, over, you know, for some time, there's been pushback against, uh, you know, a private prisons of states because they, they want to divert taxpayer money from, uh, from, you know, from, from investing into these private prisons. They instead of you know working on a decarceration efforts and you know housing, mental health, and those things, they usually just hand it off to private you know corporations to operate the prison so that it don't comes out of a, a taxpayer dollars. But I think you know, especially for New York, New York, in New York City, I think we've been doing a really good job to to, to move away from because not every state has a private prison. So and uh, and I think you know more and more people. We'd rather have, you know, our taxpayer dollars to go to the things that actually um, provides public safety, like housing, like mental health, like you know, community-based programs and services in in our, in our cities, rather than you know, utilizing you know our tax dollars to you know, jail jails and prison. Like right now, and New Yorkers pay, uh, New York, you know, people in New York City, we pay over half five hundred fifty-six thousand dollars a year to keep one person on Rikers Island for, for a year. One person, over half a million dollars a year to keep one person detained on Rikers Island for a year. And I'm sure that, you know, people think we could actually be doing better things with that, those resources than incarcerating people. We remind you who are mostly overwhelmingly held pretrial. They haven't had their day in court. Some people stay on Rikers for a year, two, three years or more. And, and, and half of the population currently right now on Rikers Island have people uh, who have mental health uh, issues, mental health challenges, and they're not getting those services, you know, in their communities where where I think it would be a better, better fit, you know, uh, use of our resources and taxpayer money. Great, thank you. Um, is rehabilitation the goal of the justice system? Victor, I saw you smile. And I really was. I really wanted to let Darren hit the first ball, but you called my name, so now you put me on the spot. So, um, rehabilitation has never been the goal of incarceration. It has always been a punishment paradigm. So you are uh, judged um, guilty of a crime, and as a result, the answer for your uh, being convicted is to send you out of your community 
thousands of miles away from your community, your family, and your loved ones, right? And once you get to this facility, if you will, right, the the opportunities for uh, redemption or transformation, you know what I'm saying, the design of the prison industrial complex is, like I say, always about making money. Prison industrial complex is about making money. And by having people incarcerated, each body is worth X amount of dollars. I, I think, and believe me, my my um, numbers might be a little bit off. If I'm not mistaken, it's like anywhere between 85000 to to 100000 plus dollars to incarcerate people in the state correction for and if people have health issues and Darren to point out that that you know doubles and triples in most cases, right? However, um the the opportunity for uh, redemption and transformation is not presented, right? It's not presented because I I I know for myself that my decision to uh transform came from myself and not from what the prisons had available. And myself, along with other colleagues, people who were incarcerated, we actually designed programs that were geared towards reintegration. We did that, not the state. We did that, okay, with no money, okay? So these billions and billions of dollars that these institutions have, they could be using those monies for reintegration, reentry, transformation, mental health, housing and all those other things that go along with a person once your, your sentence is over. But no, it's not designed for person to transform their lives. They may have some program, but they don't have enough substantive program. And I've seen over the course of the years, you know, that I've been home, how they took programs away, especially when you're talking about education, because education is one of the key factors of a person coming home and be able to successfully reintegrate and successfully be uh, integrated within the work market to educate. They took those programs out. So there's very few educational programs in, well, let me just say it like this here. During my period of time, when I was doing uh, incarcerated, you could come out with PhDs, okay? And people were coming home with PhD, and guess what? You never see them again. And they became program directors, and they designed programs to help formerly incarcerated people in the reintegration process. The prison industrial complex is not built on, you know, um, transformation. It's built on a punishment paradigm. I'll leave it there. Keep that moving for my colleagues. Yeah, I don't know if Eli want to chime in at some point, but, but, um, um, I think like the history of like prisons in our country is, you know, it's, you know, it's beginning with like the Quakers to come up with a system, you know, the penitent system, you know, penitentiary. It probably is, it's probably started out like to rehabilitate people, you know, that may have caused some harm in the community. And then the Quakers kind of sort of going in a different direction early and they moved away from, you know, um, supporting the, 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 you know, the, the prison system that eventually evolved to what we have now, but, and it has, and it has changed away from, you know, the idea to like, you know, penitence and rehabilitation. It changed a very long time ago. And like, I think we could probably ch check like the, um, 
some data and studies that show that the the reincarceration rate, what they say, the recidivism rate of you know corrections, you know, in our country is like over sixty percent. More than half of the people are reincarcerated. So if it was a correctional system, a rehabilitation system, then those numbers would be much much lower than that than that high number. And and if we had a school that had a sixty eight percent dropout, I think we would be making some changes. So what is what so that so that says. You know, so the same thing should apply to our criminal criminal legal system, you know, jails and prisons. If we have this such high recidivism rate, why aren't, you know, these changes being made to, like, actually be effective, you know? Um, so we won't have, you know, reincarceration and recidivism. So as, as Victor said, you know, they, at, the, at, at this moment for a very long time, for far too long, you know, our prisons and jails and, you know, a correct, correctional system has been, has failed in regards to, um, um, you know, what they say they're supposed to do, rehabilitate and correct and, and transform. Yes, thank you. Um, I am going to move on to um, a question about faith. Um, and so the question is, how does your faith ground you in your work? Um, and we can start with Ellie. I want to ask specifically, what are your thoughts on justice through a Jewish lens? Yeah, so Judaism and justice can go, uh, they obviously go hand in hand in a lot of different ways. And there's some very explicit verses, which people like to quote, and that that's good. I think what I want to mention in this context is that... Um, for me, as an Orthodox Jew, I place a high value on halacha, which is sort of the uh, the everyday rules of how you walk through life. And that, for, for Orthodox Jews, basically guides everything they do. And the main thing that I want to remind people is that a codex, a, a book, one of these books of halacha, of like, that guide you and how to, how to do your life cannot be just justice is something that people uh, that people do. Uh, people can be just or not as they're uh, as they're applying uh, what they're reading. And in order to apply correctly, people need to be looking at the values. And it's very clear from the from the sources throughout Jewish history that we're focused on something much more than than just crime and punishment. We're focused on values, values like teshuva, right? Which is return and repentance. Something that the rabbis really believed was possible even for, uh, for really anyone. There are stories about um, uh, Eliezer ben Dordaya, right? This was a, a sage who lived, you know, back in uh, ancient times. And uh, the, the Talmud talks about how he did every uh, degenerate crime possible. And he, with his last breath, he did uh, Tishuvah. He returned, right? And, and he was accepted, he was accepted uh, to heaven. And um, these stories aren't meaningless. There's two things. There's the halacha, there's like the what you should do. And then there's all the value that you're supposed to use as a lens for interpreting it. And I think that there's been a lot of damage done to justice uh, by way of people who are hyper fixated on the letter of the law as writ read in a book without any context. And if you just look at the way that rabbis throughout history have interpreted 
law, you'll see values of compassion. You'll see values of change. You'll see values of uh, inclusion, really centering people as opposed to the book itself. I think that that's where uh, justice shows up for me in, uh, for, in, in Judaism for me is through, through the power of people who are taking a creative look at, uh, yeah, how, how to make sure that what we're saying is actually in line with our values and not just um, what, what's uh, coming out of a book. Thank you. Um, so I wanna hear from either Darren or Victor um, about how your spirituality defines justice for you. Does anyone wanna start? Yeah, I think Eli. Kind of, yeah, Eli. Kind of, you went for the hook. I've got yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, something else for me, you know, like what he spoke about. Eli spoke about like the faith in people, you know, and that's what's been like fueling my spirit. Uh, the people who've been advocating and and organizing for justice, you know, um, you know, like one of our members, uh, her name is Anna, and she, you know, her son was on Rikers Island for. Over, over five years, pre-trial, pre mind, mind you, just like waiting, going back and forth to court, back and forth to court. And, bec and because, I, you know, and she was like, something is not right about that. And and she got involved in advocacy and organized it around the campaign to close Rikers. And like seeing, you know, mothers, mothers like Anna, uh, Tamara, uh, Tamara, one of our members at Freedom Agenda, uh, you know, her son had a mental health issue and and because of the conditions, you know, the traumatic conditions, he ultimately took his own life, you know, right? Because and she became a, 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 a staunch advocate against solitary confinement in New York City, uh, which was actually passed by city council last night, um, last month. And um, so, yeah, so it's the people that feeds my spirit, that keep me going when I feel like, man, we, we, might, we might have lost this, this fight. But, you know, those members and those family members, you know, those New Yorkers and allies who know that it's 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 a, it's a struggle, you know, and justice is a struggle. And sometimes it's, it's you know, there's there's so many stories and just you know the my my faith in the people that's been you know doing this work is is what uh, keeps my spirit going. Thank you for sharing, Victor. Do you have anything to add? Do. So thank you so much for that. It's a good question. So for me, um, as a Muslim, um, and my faith, my understanding, right, I can say for a fact that once humankind got away from God's words and corrupted God's meaning is where we went off the cliff, right? So in Islam, two things guide me. Shariat, which is Islamic law, and the Sunnah which is the practices of Prophet peace be upon him, right? And how he conducted himself and how he treated people and how he encouraged humankind to treat each other based on God's revelation and words as to how we as human beings, what our responsibility is not only to self, but to other human beings. And it's always about justice and fairness and equality and charity and treating people, you know, equally and helping where you can help and not taking advantage of people's plight in life. That's a duty. It's a sacred duty. And, you know, I'm listening to Eli. It's like I, I just started my armpit started sweating because I'm hearing him talking and I'm like, oh, yeah, go ahead, give it to him, give it to him. But I understand that. 
So for me, I believe, and I, 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 I took my shahada, which is basically my, uh, uh, my commitment as a Muslim, not while I was inside, but while I was outside, right? And having opportunity to practice the Islamic faith, but not only also to um, have opportunities to study other religions, because in Islam, it teaches us to study other religions and not just follow blindly one thing. In order for you to fully encompass God's words and understanding, you have to have an understanding of other religions and how we're really not that much different from each other. It's just a matter of how we are uh, uh, ibadah, which in Islam means worship, you know what I'm saying? But it's just so similar. So for me, uh, my faith, uh, number one, keeps me grounded in the work and belief in that if you continue and you persist and you are uh, diligent, eventually you will be successful in your goals. So for me, and of course, Darren kind of sort of like mentioned our people and, you know, the work that we've been doing and successes that we have, you know what I'm saying, is the fuel that keeps me doing what I'm doing. It keeps me hopeful that we will, we are making a difference uh, small incremental places and stuff, but I think is that the, con the continuity of doing what we're doing, knowing that if we keep on going, eventually we'll be successful in our endeavors and that we, the people, can change our conditions. Definitely. Thank you for sharing. Um, so I wanted to next ask, uh, do you agree with the death penalty? Darren, would you like to go? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you know, the current system that we have in place, there's been a, a lot of executions that have, you know, we come to find like, oh, this person was innocent. Um, and, you know, you know, every state is different in, our, in this country. And, and, you know, New York, thank goodness, doesn't have it. And, and I think, I believe, you know, I believe that, you know, redemption, I believe, you know, at some point, you know, you know, people, most, you know, ultimately could be redeemed at some point and to like cut a person's life off, I'm definitely not a support, you know, a support of the death penalty, especially by the state, because there's been a lot of cases, there's been, it's been too, too many cases, far too many cases, you know, with a death penalty, someone was executed and, and, and it turned out, you know, it was wrong, or, or it wasn't beyond a shadow of a doubt, or even even the method of the death. There's been a lot of questions around the method of execution that's kind of, that was that people deemed as being as torturous, and um, and um, and yeah. So that's something, you know, even incarceration to some degree is like a what they call a death by incarceration. You know, people just just die. You know, after 20, 30, 40 years, we have. I think we should be looking at other places in the world. And like, who's doing it better? Like, what justice system is, is more just and more fair? Like, some you know, some more developed countries don't have like like life in prison. You know, they took they chose to take a different direction and invest in you know uh, in in communities and invest in you know housing and mental health. So. It's, it's, that's a very controversial like issue in our country and there various opinions about it. But personally, for me, you know, one life, I'm making a mistake on one life, man, it's like, 
that's just too much, you know. And I think we could find better ways to deal to um to hold people accountable, of course, and to administer justice. And and that way, I don't I don't see, you know, how uh, that you know the death penalty could like bring healing to a person who's been harmed. In my you know, from my perspective. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, Victor, do you have any thoughts? Yes. So thank you so much for that question. And definitely, emphatically, I am totally against the death penalty. Um, how dare, how dare humankind decide a person's life or death? How dare humanity take that responsibility on? Life and death belongs to God. Okay. So now you're gonna you're gonna put yourself in God's place and gonna decide who lives and who dies. Totally, totally. I'm totally against that. Um, and uh, uh, Darren uh, mentioned. So, what does what does it do um, to take a person's life, right, in retribution for perhaps them taking somebody else's life? Does it fix the circumstances? No, it does not. Does it change anything that has happened? Does it? Darren used the word healing okay uh you know i mean there's a lot of different connotations that we could put on that but to even you know what i'm saying figure that oh you're evening up the scoreboard because maybe this person took somebody's life or was the cause of somebody losing. so we're going to take your life you were evening up the scoreboard that goes back to the retribution and punishment paradigm but how how does that even even measure up for peace of mind or solace? I just I just can't make the connection how how that even equates with justice. You know what I'm saying? In in terms of society, saying it's justice that we executed this person because they killed somebody. That's just no. That's humankind's justice, which is definitely misapplied. And here we go again disproportionately applied to people of color and indigenous people. That's the systemic justice that people often uh, uh, place this connotation on. But what does it do for society at large? I think it does nothing and serves no purpose. Thank you for sharing. Um, Ellie, do you have anything from the Jewish perspective to add about this? Yeah, I think the thing that I want to bring in on this is a uh, is a piece of rabbinic literature that I heard recently, which uh, says that uh, the rabbis say that a court which kills once in every seven years is considered a killer court. And then there's a, there's a interesting character who comes in and says uh, his name is Rabbi Eliezer Ben Azaria, uh, and he says it's uh, once every seventy years is called a killer. Um, and he, he's really, he, he feels that the job of the wise people in power is to do everything they can to keep a court from killing. The whole point of all your knowledge is to figure out how to make sure that a person is not dying. I think it's also really interesting to think about who that rabbi specifically was. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah was brought into... Uh, a position of power at an extremely young age. He was 17 and he, he was wise beyond his years. And he was actually brought in because his predecessor, 
the you know the uh, the rabbinic authority before him had uh, had lost their job because of uh, you know some political issues. When they brought in a young, clear-eyed person, not in the pocket of anybody, no political leanings one way or another, someone who is just reading the sources and trying to figure out what is the right thing to do, that was Rabbi Elizabeth Azarian. He said we should basically not be uh, not be administering the death penalty. If we are, we're doing the wrong thing. Thank you for sharing. Um, so our next question is, is redemption possible in our current system? Yeah, I could tackle that. Okay. From, from my own personal experience, you know, you know, I can say, and with, and for what I've seen, like myself, I was incarcerated at the age of 17. You know, I take full responsibility and I served, you know, almost 20 years in the New York State prison system. And, and, and like doing early in my, you know, incarceration, you know, I've seen, like, it was a journey, you know, I've seen things like the um, the story of the, about my cousin, George Stinney Jr. was like, man, that made me think about, you know, the, the criminal legal system, like how it operates and why this injustice occurred. And then seeing people who I've seen like transform had like a huge impact on me. And and I've seen it and, and then not necessarily like just the incarceration, you know, actually help them transform because some people, you know, unfortunately it takes them, takes them longer. Just like, you know, some people, they go to, you know, different schools and stuff that just take them longer to complete, you know, the degree, whatever, but, but they took upon themselves. They made a choice, conscious choice to change, you know, they understand, they, they, they hold, hold themselves accountable, understand the harm that they may have caused and, and, and took the best of what they see from amongst people to, to change, to change ourselves. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's definitely, I believe definitely re redemption is possible. Uh, but, and I think redemption is possible, you know, in the communities, a lot of people that just don't fall, the, you know, fall out of the sky into the prison is people who's going through life challenges. Well, it's like right now, like mental, a lot of people are being incarcerated in New York City for having a mental health crisis. And the response is, is probably usually not the most appropriate. They want to find themselves incarcerated. People, you know, haven't been, you know, haven't been diagnosed, and and until they get incarcerated, like, oh, they had a mental health issue, and you know, a lot of people go through a lot of challenges. So I think, you know, a lot of, you know, we as a city, as a, as a nation, we be looking at these root causes that's that's driving and feeding incarceration in our country, and really try to try to tackle those things. And though, but yes, I do believe that people, you know, even people, you know, who may have caused harm sometimes, like the story that was just mentioned earlier. You know, the person did something good at the end. That that's a story of redemption as well. Thank you, Victor. Do you have anything to add? Really quickly, um, I think that redemption is possible, and in order for us to get there, we have to create the platform for redemption. As I spoke about earlier, that you know, transformation um, has to happen within yourself internally first. And once that process is done, then you have to have uh, resources and a platform for that to actually happen and occur and for it to you know, manifest itself. And also uh, the additional piece to the redemptive part is that you have to create policies that will actually make redemption possible. And unfortunately we are not there yet we're still we're working on it though, um, like clean slate, 
That's a, you know, a component of redemption, so to speak, removing the barriers to, um, you know, people successfully re-entry, you know what I'm saying, systemic barriers that are in place. Once you go to prison, you got a felony on your record, you're branded for life, just like a slave, okay? Those barriers have to be removed. And that means it's going to take legislation, it's going to take people, um, and it's going to take a lot of different moving parts. So, yeah, redemption is necessary, but there's some components that go along with that redemptive process. Thank you. Um, this next question is, uh, in your opinion, is solitary con uh, confinement immoral or justified? And does anybody want to start us out? Definitely don't want Victor to start. You don't want me to start. Darren, go for it, brother. No, go no, for it, brother. I got to fall back. I'll pass that so, to you because uh, Victor's been okay, a leading uh, advocate in New York City and New York State around this issue. So I'll defer to Victor on that one. Okay. But I'm going to really be quick in, in consideration of my other panelists. So I definitely am not going to eat up all the time. So definitely, solitary confinement is torture, it is immoral, um, it is inhumane. Um, our our um, UN repertoire, uh, well, then UN repertoire said that anybody that's held in any solitary confinement beyond 15 days is considered torture. In New York State, people prior to the passage of the Holt Bill in 2021, people were being able to held in solitary confinement indefinitely. Albert Wood Fox, one of the Angola Three, was held in solitary confinement for 43 years. That is inhumane. Um, talking about um, what happens to a person in solitary confinement, um, transformation, mental health issues, psychological damage, deprivation, social engagement, which we're social human beings. We need interaction. And as a, you know, healing, always put the word healing person from solitary confinement after being home for 25 years, I have collateral damage and still the effects of my time when I was in solitary confinement. So that's the end. And your most inhumane, one of the most inhumane things you can do to a person is have uh, put them in solitary confinement. There is no justification for a person to be placed in solitary confinement to correct their behaviors because they don't do nothing but deteriorate behaviors. It does nothing for the safety of the correctional facility. It does nothing for the safety of our community because that's what oftentimes people are released directly from solitary confinement long term. What do you think that person, how do you think that person is going to be when they've been deprived, sensory, deprived the opportunity to interact with other human beings and you release them back to the community without any transformative services in place. What do you think is going to happen? A recipe for disaster. So yes, it is inhumane. It serves no purpose. And what about the Declaration of Human, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that nobody should be tortured. Nobody should be treated inhumanely. What about our constitutional Eighth Amendment. What about that? You all know what that say. I don't have to repeat it. And here we go, right? The UN resolution that is now known as the Mandela Rule states that no one should be placed in any long-term solitary confinement. No one should be treated inhumanely. 
So what about that? Do we not respect those doctrines of our society? What are we living by when we allow this to continue to happen to our fellow human? So definitely inhumane. Thank you. Um, Darren, did you want to add to that? No, I think you summed it up. <laughs> Thank you. Ellie, anything? Uh, I, I wouldn't dare add on to uh, to Victor, but I do want to say um, in, in our tradition, uh, God created people because God couldn't stand being alone. Uh, and I think that that uh, says, says a lot about how we're supposed to think about being with people and what it does to someone to deprive them of that. Yes, thank you. Um, our next question is, how can we ensure safety and security without relying on prisons? Does anyone yeah. else? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so like, you know, we all want safe communities, right? And I think some people are start to learn more and more that, you know, that the safest communities are not the, you know, the most police communities or the, you know, the communities that had the most jails and prisons. They're the communities with the most resources, you know, uh, like in New York City, you know, the communities that have the, you know, first class quality schools, quality housing, quality hosp hospitals, et cetera. You know, these are resources and institutions that's, you know, that the, that, you know, cities invest in and, um, and, and those are usually are the most safest communities, you know, in our society. So I think how that's, and that's exactly how we move away from like um, investing in the criminal legal system, investing in jails and prisons, by actually investing in communities um, to build up those quality schools, hospital housing, and, and different, you know, programs and services. Um, and unfortunately, like here in New York City, uh, the New York City Department of Correction has the highest DOC budget in the country, um, $2.7 billion a year with a B. Second to that is Cal uh, LA County, which has uh, I think it's like a little over a billion dollars a year, but they have three times as many people in their system than New York has. And so we spend them, and we all you know, probably heard about Rikers Island in the news for the past, you know, several years. Nothing had, you know, we pay more money and gets the worst results out of our, out of our jail system. So that's why, you know, advocates like myself and Victor and organizational partners and allies have been calling on the city to actually, you know, redirect resources into the things that we know that bring safety to our communities. You know, we, like, as I mentioned earlier, half the population of Rikers Island, about 3,000 people have a mental health diagnosis. 19% of that population has a serious mental health diagnosis, meaning they have two or more uh, 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 diagnoses, you know, challenges, illnesses. Why are we not, you know, addressing that issue, you know, to get people the mental health care that they should be getting, you know, within the communities, you know? So that's something we you know we've been advocating, we've been advocating for, you know, in New York City, we're in, in, in um, budget budget season right now. And a lot of organizations, you know, that's that that's providing supportive housing and mental health are going to be, you know, calling on our, our city elected officials to, you know, we need to invest in things to close the pipelines that's feeding you know, our, our carceral system. Thank you. 
Victor, do you have anything to add? Actually, I'm going to take a seat this time and just short, Darren summed it up very well. Resources, education, and housing, mental health services, these are the type of things that keeps our criminal alternatives to incarceration. Let me say it like that. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, the next question is, in your opinion, does the current parole system work to reinstate ex-offenders back into society? I think I'm going to take a stab at that really okay. quickly. Um, so, if you... If you, okay, let me say it like this. So when you're incarcerated, right, or supposedly pay your debt to society, right, and when you come out, you're supposed to be changed. Like I said, I'm going to say this again, prison don't change you, you change yourself. So there's not that platform for that to happen. And if you do not have the appropriate substantive programs that are community-related to keep a person connected and keep that continuum when a person becomes eligible for parole and you don't appropriately prepare a person for reintegration, then they come down a person that's been in jail for 20 years that's ill-prepared for society and to deal with the different societal challenges. So I believe that our current parole system does not do that at all, because guess what? It's about making money. So yeah, you can get parole, but if you're not appropriately prepared to deal with the various challenges that you are going to face, psychological, and, 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 and I have to say this as a person myself, because I had to uh, do therapy when I came home for a minute to kind of sort of like find my way and get my balance and get my direction in life. If you don't have those types of mental health services, and this is big, we keep, Darren says, a lot of people, we keep talking about mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health how important and integral that is to a person's successful reentry. If you don't include that component, then like I say, a recipe for disaster. So what I think this current parole system, the way it operates, does not prepare a person for a successful reentry because they want you to come back because you represent a dollar bill. And if you come back, you're worth more money to them. You know what I'm saying? So I think that this current system uh, of parole is poor and needs great improvement. And they need to really, really, you know, have a substantive program preparing people for reentry at the point of entry. Not wait 20 years down the line after they done done 20 years and they get ready to go home in six months. Now you bum rush them and keep all these programs on. You cannot comprehend that. You can't uh, actually implement the mechanisms of that reentry process. So you have to start reentry at the point of entry. Thank you. Um, Darren or Ellie have anything to add to that? That's okay. Um, well, we can move on to the last question uh, in hopes of 
uh, leaving this off is somewhat uplifting. Uh, what is a message of hope you have? Oh, yeah, I guess I could get started with that one. So, so you know, when it comes to Rikers Island, so, you know, just a little, a little context, you know, Rikers Island uh, is the last penal colony in the United States. Uh, many people probably heard of Alcatraz, which closed decades ago, I think like 1963 or something like that. McNeil Island, which was a penal colony in, in our country, closed like in the early 2000s, leaving Rikers Island to be the last penal colony in the United States. It's 400 acres of land with 10 jails on there. 90% of the people detained there are held pre-trial, meaning they haven't seen their day in court, you know, and, and, and they're mostly there because they can't uh, uh, afford uh, to bail. There are some people there who are there um, because, you know, they might have like a city sentence for one year or less. You know, some people, a small percentage of people that have been convicted and serve a city sentence. But thanks to, you know, and we probably all heard all the stories of all the horrible things and the violence and brutality and deaths that's been coming out of Rikers Island and us in New York City over the past, you know, for several years now. And thanks to advocates, you know, and, you know, family members who lost loved ones on Rikers Island, you know, city council passed the law in 2019 to close Rikers Island by 2027. And, uh, and, and to, you know, going, because there's actually 14 jails in the New York City jail system, 10 of them on Rikers. There's one, you know, jail next to the court in Brooklyn, one in Queens next to the court, the, uh, Manhattan, and then there's the boat, which is uh, which is adjacent to the Bronx. But, you know, so this law, you know, this is established law. And, you know, it's not a legal responsibility for our city, but it's a moral imperative because nothing good comes out of Rikers Island. It's a stain on our city. It, it has, you know, a, a bloating budget that's operated off two, of $2.7 billion a year. People, you know, since this, under, since this current administration took office, 30 people have lost their lives and thousands of you know, people with mental health and how they're suffering it. The, 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 the good thing is that we have this law, we have organizations, the campaign to close Rikers Island is a coalition with over 180 organizations across our city that's been pushing the city to you know meet the deadline to close Rikers Island. And we could redistribute those resources into the things that communities need and actually bring safety in our community. So that's kind of what I wanted to share. Thank you. Um, Ali, do you have anything to add about this? Yeah, this past, um, this past high holiday season, I actually, uh, spent a little bit of time at, uh, at Rikers and, uh, I was with the congregants there and I just, you know, I'm, I was thinking about the verse that we were about the words that we were saying in the in the Rosh Hashanah and the High Holiday Prayer, Adyo Moto Achakelo, right? That God says, "Until the day of death, I wait for the person to return to me." Um, I got this sense as I was talking to the congregants there that they have a, a feel feelings of contrition, feelings of sincerity, incredible self awareness, and. I, I was in so much pain at the fact that God is waiting for these people. And the only thing in the way is, is me, right? The only thing in the way is this island 
that we've put in between them and God. Uh, yeah, after speaking with the speaking with the people there, after praying with them, after eating with them, uh, I have a lot of I, I have a lot of hope. Uh, these are these are people that if we do right by them, they'll do right by us. Thank you, Victor. Do you have anything message of hope? Yeah, I think that uh, we, as we the people, you know, um, it's going to be up to us, you know, to really, you know, transform this this circumstances. And you know, when we talk about Rackers Island, I'm on Rackers Island every month, twice a month, right? Um, from a different coalition and work at it. I mean, if you, you know, you hear you hear about Rackers Island, you know, you read about Rackers Island. You hear the muckety mucks talk about racket out, but like Eli, when you go there and you see the dehumanization, the degradation, and the depression, I don't know. You cannot go there and not be affected. Let me say it like that. You know what I'm saying? And when you see our fellow human beings in this condition that they it really hurts your heart, touches your soul, you know. The old uh, adage is that, you know, society is judged by how we treat our most marginalized people. For those that are spiritually conscious, you know what you're going to be judged by. And humankind is going to be judged by those same thing. And I can tell you, if we don't do something, you know, to change the conditions you know, of our fellow human beings, and when the day that we return back to our God and they ask you, what did you do with the life that I loaned you? Who did I, who did you help with the life that I loaned you? And you ain't got nothing to say. I just feel sorry for you. So I just think that it's up to us, the people, to change the conditions of our own people. And that's my message of hope, people. Thank you very much. Um, well, I believe that was the final question, so I'm going to turn it over to Eddie to close us out. Thank you so much, Emma. And I, I guess uh, my 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 last question from from everybody here is: How do we stay in touch with uh, both of y'all's amazing work? How can we support you? How do we keep in, in touch with knowing all the the amazing things that both of you are working on, Darren and Victor? Yeah, easily. So we could go. People could just Google campaign to close Rikers.org. That's campaign to close Rikers.org and sign up for the, our newsletter where you can, you know, learn about upcoming, you know, uh, uh, actions. You know, there's so many ways that people can involve, whether it's like sign a petition, um, coming to a rally. Uh, actually, the, actually, March 8th at uh, City Hall, we're going to be having a rally on the steps of City Hall ahead of this committee on criminal justice hearing um, about the city budget and how our city you know, has a bloated, you know, Department of Corrections budget and we need, you know, to invest resources into, uh, you know, supportive housing and mental health and the things that we know that bring safety. So, so that's campaign to close writers.org, sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for sharing that. Victor, how can we stay in touch with your work? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, Darren and I like joined at the hips, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, we're cross connected. 
But my particular camp coalitions is called solitary www.holdsolitary.org. Um, and it will come up and you'll see all the amazing things that we're doing. Um, as Darren pointed out, you know, we have a couple of rallies coming up um, that people can follow, join. And then, as Darren said, you know, sign petitions, you know, forward the email. I think that, you know, even though, you know, we, we all have, um, I guess, capacities, things that we can do. So I think that each one of us can do something. If it's calling a person and say, hey, you know, I heard such and such, such and such about this here, do further research. Oh, there's a rally over here. Oh, a matter of fact, did you see the online petition? Yeah, sign on, pass it on. You know, I think that there's so many multiple things that people can do because everybody can, you know, be out, advocate, rally, you know what I'm saying, march in the rain, snow, in the, in the blistering heat. Everybody can't do that. And we shouldn't all be doing that because this is a large systemic problem that I think has to be addressed from so many different platforms. So that's my word. So thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Emma, for um, combining to to create such a powerful program and ask really hard conversations. I believe in a time right now where the world wants to divide us and make us feel like there isn't interfaith coalitions, like communities of color aren't coming together with different Jewish communities, different Muslim communities. Here we are together in community talking about justice, looking to better our communities. And that is powerful. That is uh, the illuminating light of hope that keeps us all together. Thank you so much to our speakers, to our moderators who helped this event um, come together and, and make possible. Thank you so much, all of you who are listening, and I hope you have a great day. Take care.